When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sins that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom the restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong shall go to the Lord. The restitution shall go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which the atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever one gives to the priest shall be his. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she, is not ta- she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen well earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall Make her take an oath, saying, If no man is lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, although you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman... Take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of grain offering as it is a memorial portion and burn it on the altar of the Lord. And afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her thighs shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law that 
in cases of jealousy when a wife, though under a husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out all of this law, for her all of this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Father, we come before you this day, and we recognize that you are Lord of all. And we thank you for all that you've given to us. Father, we pray for those in our church who are traveling today or who are unable to be here, for the Rackleys who are dealing with medical issues, Lord God, and we just thank you and love you this day. We also come before you and we are humbled before you and the word that you've given to us. Lord, this is a very challenging passage of text. And so I pray, Father God, that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, open our souls to hear what you have spoken to us through your word. We believe that every word of scripture is inspired by God, including this one. So I pray, Father God, that you would give us understanding by your spirit. And I pray, Father God, that you would enable me to speak clearly and not to promote myself or the church or anything, but that we would glorify you and that you would be exalted in all the things that we would have, Lord God. I pray, Father God, for your grace and your mercies to be upon us. Strengthen us this day. We thank you now for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, everything, probably maybe one of the clear, most clearest laws in the entire universe is that things tend to go from, well, they don't tend to, they do go from a state of order to disorder, right? I mean, right, your yard would be a great example. No matter how often you uh, pick up the leaves and weed, uh, come back a couple days later, and disorder has resulted. Just look at your, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but I look at our house, and it's like, oh, it's nice and clean, everything's wonderful. And then I turn around, it's like, gee, what happened? Um, And so things go from a state of order to disorder. And so as we approach the book of Numbers, chapter 5, we have seen that God has has established order in his camp. As as the people of Israel are going to be moving from uh, the mountain of Sinai into the promised land, God has set up in in chapters 1 through 4 an order for the camp. We, we see that the people are numbered for, for warfare. We see that they, they are given certain places where they are to camp. The Levites are structured. The priests are given tasks to do. But here's the thing. The order that God has set up in chapters 1 through 4 is not naturally self-sustaining. Disorder is part of our normal life as we live in this fallen world. And so the camp is arranged for warfare. It is also arranged for worship. And in the midst of this camp, God is central. God dwells in the midst of his people. This is central to understanding the book of Numbers, or at least this part of the book of Numbers, that the camp is arranged. God is in the center of his people. And we need to understand the centrality of his presence. This was The priority of the camp, you'll recall, after the sin of the golden calf, um, God and Moses, God spoke to Moses and said, listen, I'm still going to fulfill all of my promises that I gave to you, but here's the deal, I'm not going with you. And Moses was like, listen, if you don't go, this deal's off, because it is your presence that makes us us. It is your presence. 
that makes us a people of God. You, your presence in our midst is the most important thing about us. And if you're not here, then who are we? And so the centrality of God in the midst of his people is of central importance. Because you see the existence of Israel um, moving through the the wilderness was a manifestation of the glory of God. They displayed the splendor and glory and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And so this, um, this is kind of where we have been in the book of Numbers. Let me give you a little bit of preview as to where we are going to go today in, in this message. Well, we've got order and we've got the centrality of God. We've got the holiness of God. But what happens when things go from a state of order to disorder? What happens, for instance, when somebody sins? What do we do about that? Because we know somebody's going to blow it pretty quickly. Especially in light of the fact that uh, that we've been looking at the holiness of God. Um, Holiness was required of the people. It was required of the people because God is holy. In fact, he says this, I'm holy, so you, my people, are to be holy as well. In other words, that which is unclean is the antithesis of that which is holy. The basic principle is this, that the holy must not come into contact with the unclean. These two things are separate And so an unclean person coming into the presence of a holy God we've already seen will result in their death. So what do we do when we defile ourselves? What do we do when we become unclean? How do we deal with this situation? And that's what Leviticus chapter 5 is addressing, at least briefly. So the basic principle is that the holy must not come into contact with that as unclean. And so this particular text deals with three different kinds of impurities along with three different remedies. And the three kinds of impurities that we see is the first one is a ceremonial impurity. Now, what's interesting here about this one is that it is not a moral issue. It's not the result of sin. I'll unpack that in just a little bit. But it's a ceremonial defilement. The second one we see in verses 5 through 10 is a transgression. It's known as break. It's called breaking faith. When somebody breaks faith with with the Lord, this is a moral issue. Uh, Broadly, it's any transgression. But I think uh, as, as we study this, we're going to see that it's specifically dealing with stealing or defrauding a brother or sister. Um, and it is, it is deliberate. So, The first one is ceremonial, not moral. The second one is transgression. It is moral and it is deliberate. And the third one is unfaithfulness. And the bulk of chapter 5 deals with this unfaithfulness in verses 11 through 31. And what's interesting here is that it deals with suspicion when there is, it deals with when somebody is suspicious but has no proof. What do we do when I have suspicion about something but I have no proof? All right, so that's what 11... Through 31 is is about. So these are all situations that compromise the holiness of God's people, and that is incompatible with God, who is holy, who is dwelling in their midst. So we got to deal with this because we have a holy God dwelling in our midst, but we're not. So what's the remedy? All right. So let me just uh, get some challenges out of the way because no doubt about it, this is a very, very challenging passage of text. It's an intimidating passage of text. Um, 
But let me address maybe three different challenges that I think we're going to see today, and then I'll actually delve into uh, um, trying to unpack um, these passages of Scripture. The first challenge that is presented to us I've described as the distance of culture. The distance of culture. This event occurred about 3,500 years ago. We need to be very cautious about judging ancient cultures by 21st century Western norms. I'm not saying that we excuse, but I'm saying be cautious. They they have a completely different set of norms than you and I do. So we should be cautious about judging ancient cultures by 21st century norms, just as I would hope if they were able to transport into our day that they would not judge us by their 14th century B.C. cultural norms. They would be appalled if they came in, if they were in our society today. I read a a report this week that families attend church 1.6 times per month. An ancient culture such as this one would be appalled that God bids you into his presence every Lord's Day and you don't show up? Are you kidding me? You slaughter 60 million babies and you're going to talk to us about righteousness? Mm, No. I don't think so. So we need to be cautious about judging an ancient culture. I'm not saying that we dismiss. I'm just saying cautious. The second challenge is that these laws, we need to recognize that these laws are peculiar to Old Testament or Old Covenant administration. They are difficult for us to understand when we compare it to the simplicity of the New Covenant age. So forgiveness of sins today for us, praise God, is pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, we even did it today. We, we presented, we went to the Lord and said, Lord, forgive us of our sins. And then we have assurance of our forgiveness because of Christ. And so we look at these, these elaborate ceremonies and these um, uh, very detailed instructions of what to do. These were shadows that pointed forward to Christ. And so these are peculiar to an old covenant age um, or, or the old covenant administration. And then we add even other uniqueness at least um, verses 11 through 31 are, are peculiar even to the Old Testament. We don't see anything like this anywhere in the Old Covenant. And so it, it's a challenge. It's, I'm just telling you, this is one of our challenges. And then our third challenge is I think perhaps we are all too forgetful of remembering. We, we are forgetful of the sinfulness of sin. And I think when we study uh, uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and as we study the book of Numbers, it's a constant reminder of the sinfulness of sin. We tend to brush it off as, well, I kind of did this and I oopsed. And what, no, we have sinned against a holy God. And so the book of Numbers is a stark reminder of how God continues to look upon our sinfulness. So 
with those challenges addressed, let me uh, deal with this first case. Case number one, the case of defilement. Now, if you want more detail about this, you can go back to the book of Leviticus and in chapters 13 through 15, you'll see much greater detail about this. It's almost like the book of Leviticus gave us the law and the book of Numbers shows how it's lived out. So the book of Leviticus, all the laws are just given. Now in the book of Numbers, we're seeing the application of the law given in Leviticus. But the big question, or at least the big question to me when I'm dealing with this, um, when I'm dealing with these, this first case, and that is, why, why is there a punishment for somebody who's accused of some, or something that happens to somebody they had no control over? Why punish a person for something that is beyond their control? None of these things, except maybe the, the contact with, with a dead person, is really, all these issues are beyond their control. And, and why are they, quote, punished or put outside the camp for a circumstance that they had no control over? That's my first question. And I think what we would end up seeing in this is, first of all, it's a reminder that things are broken. That things are not as they are supposed to be. Things are broken, and broken things need to be fixed. Ultimately, I think this points to to the apex of brokenness, and that is death. Let me explain. The ultimate brokenness each of these impurities brought a person into the realm of death. And so, they, and so they were put outside the camp. Obviously, a dead body, that makes sense. So if you come into contact with something dead, you have um, been brought into the realm of death. But a discharge of blood or semen, which are both associated with life, and so their loss or their omission moves a person from life to death. And finally, skin disease, and that is a wasting of the flesh. I think the point here is that our situation is dire. Death is the ultimate reminder that we are broken and that we need to be fixed. In other words, our problem is not just our behavior. We're going to see behavior issues in the next case number two. But right now, foundational to the human condition is not what we do, but who we are. It is about our nature. And so our issue, our problem is not the fact that I did something wrong or didn't do something I was supposed to do. But the biggest issue is that we are dead by reason of our trespasses and sins. That's our biggest issue is that we are, by nature, children of wrath. This needs to be fixed. It is about our nature. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'd like to offer a remedy, a couple of remedies, and these uh, all will be found in the Gospel of Luke. But the first passage I want to look at is in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. And listen to Luke, the inspired author Luke. While Jesus was, is it, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. 
And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. The leper approaches and the, Jesus does the most radical thing that you could imagine. He touches the leper. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean by the leper's leprosy, the leprous man becomes clean because of Jesus' holiness. Jesus is not defiled, but rather the man is cleansed. You are put outside of the camp because you have a leprous disease, the remedy is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Then we move over to Luke chapter 8. And in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, we see this. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he said he had an only daughter about the age of 12, and she was dying. She wasn't dead yet. And so he pleads that Jesus would come. My daughter is dying. And on his way, listen to this. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood was ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and, you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Somebody touched me. For I perceived that the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not Hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. You can see why she had such fear. I'm going to be put outside the camp. I have come into contact with this rabbi. I have touched the hem of his garment and everything I've touched has become unclean. I need to be put outside the camp. What's going to happen to me? And Jesus says, you're not put outside the camp, daughter. Be made well. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. We have a leprous person healed. We have a person with a discharged heel. And now we have a dead person. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. And when he came into the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead. She's sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. And so now we have the Savior coming into contact with a dead person. And instead of him being defiled and needing to be put outside the camp for his defilement, rather his holiness and the life that he has in and of himself brings life to the one who is dead. And nobody is put outside the camp. 
Jesus is not defiled and he is not put outside the camp. Rather, death is reversed by his presence. Paul, as I said earlier, who can deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so we see this first case study in the book of Numbers being fulfilled, I believe, in the person of Christ. We come to our second case study, and this is the case of a, defi- of a transgression. It is a sin of commission. It is deliberate. Somebody has actually sinned against their brother. The sin is not specified for us here, but again, I just uh, uh, point you to Leviticus chapter 6, which will help us understand it. I'm not going to go through Leviticus 6, but you will see that they are parallel accounts. And what is being described here is theft by deception or misrepresentation. All right, so this is stealing. It's not like sneaking into their house and taking something, but it's by deceiving them or misrepresenting something. One of the things I want to point you to as we think about this is that I want to remind you that sin such as this not only is an offense against our brother, but is an offense against God. And so when somebody steals, we tend to think, oh, it's just the other person who is harmed. But Numbers reminds us that something like this, a transgression such as this, is, um, is committed against both your neighbor and against God, and we're going to see that in the remedy. Here was the procedure through which the uh, um, this theft was to be dealt with. Well, let me give you just a little bit of background. Here's the thing. So somebody stole through misrepresentation or through deception, and later was convicted of their sins, um, they would then go to the person they stole from and make it right. But this case is dealing, what if that person has died? And now you can't go to that person. And further, what if he has no next of kin and you can't go to them? Then you go to take it to the priest. But that's what this this is all about, a restitution. How do I make restitution for a sin that I have committed against my brother? The first one in verse 7 we see is that there is a recognition for the wrong that is done. He shall confess his sins that he has committed. That's the first thing. In other words, we cease from excusing our sins. Well, I didn't really totally mislead. Or they really should have known that I was, you know, being deceptive. Hey, you know what? If they're so stupid as to be misled by this crazy scam I pulled, that's on them. Nope. I stole from my brother. I stole from my sister. I misrepresented things. I'm in the wrong. I have sinned against them. That's the first procedure, is to recognize that a sin, a wrong has been done. But the second then is restitution. In verses 7 and 8, it is the making things right. So the, the, what they say is, okay, well, you've got to pay them back plus 20%. So if you defrauded them of 100 bucks, you've got to give them 120. All right? So that seems fair. Um, not only do you give them back, but also, you know, they've been... They've been defrauded. You need to pay them back. So that is, now here's what's happening, is I'm making it right with my fellow human being. So if I've defrauded you, now I have not only paid you back, but paid you extra. We've made restitution. The horizontal is good. 
But sin is not only against man, it is also against God. And so atonement also has to be made. And you hear that you see this in the ram of atonement. The ram of atonement needed to be offered. In other words, now that I've also been made right with man, I need to be made right with God. And for that, the ram of atonement would be offered. I want you to point you to the substitutionary nature of this sacrifice. That is, an innocent victim was killed for your sin. Blood of an innocent animal was sacrificed for your sin. So as we look at this remedy, we need to remember it is a reminder, first of all, that atonement is necessary. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. And those wages must be paid. Point you and direct you to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We begin with dealing with our deliberate sin, our transgression, our sin of commission by seeking forgiveness of sins. We confess our sins and He is faithful to forgive us of our sins. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that the certificate of debt was nailed to the cross when Christ died on the cross. Our debt, that certificate, that IOU that said we are in debt was also nailed to the cross. The debt has been canceled. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we read that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is just an atoning sacrifice. In other words, the wages of sin is death and those wages must be paid. And in our case, the wages for our sin was paid not by the ram of atonement, but by the Lamb of God. And so we see this transgression, a sin of defrauding another person. And there was confession, there was restitution, and there was atonement being made right with God and of course this probably brings many of your minds to the person of Zacchaeus who was Jesus was traveling through Jericho and Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree to find uh, to see Jesus and Jesus says I I need to I'm going to have dinner with you but eventually Zacchaeus comes and confesses his sins and what does he do he says if I defrauded anybody I'll pay him back and he added massive interest here was a man who said I've He had been made right with Christ and now he's paying back his fellow man. He's made restitution. When we sin, we generally don't sin only against God, nor do we sin only against man, but we sin against both. And here we see that in Leviticus, it's pointing forward to a time um, when our sin towards one another and our sin toward God would be rectified. And then finally we come to case number three and that's the case of unfaithfulness. And this particular passage of text um, presents all sorts of difficulties for us. 
I was telling Simone this week that when I was preparing to study through the book of Numbers, first of all, Numbers is an intimidating book to begin with. But there are always some passages of text that you're excited about and you, you can't wait till you get to. And then there's always some passages of text that are intimidating. This was one of the sections I was thinking, well, maybe something will happen and I'll be able to avoid that passage of text. And well, here we are. And uh, I'm waiting, waiting. I guess I'm supposed to go forward with it. So here we go. I guess our first thing, especially in our culture today, is this um, promoting, is this particular passage of text an attack on women? Does this passage of text just reinforce or give a foundation for patriarchy? I think that's the first place many of our minds may go. I've put for you in your sermon notes a little link that I read this week that I thought was helpful. If you want to look at it, it's basically called is Numbers Chapter 5, Unfair to Women. I'll let you read that blog article, but I, I think it's it can be helpful, but that's our first question. Um, our first question is, is this evidence of patriarchy and is this an attack on women? Well, first of all, let me point out that I think what we see here is man's sinfulness on full display. And what we see in this ceremony, and one of the challenges of this passive text is how It kind of rambles. It kind of goes back and forth. And there's, le- and there's words and language in here we don't find anywhere else in the Bible. And it's just, it's, it's a difficult passage of text. But what we do see in this ceremony is at least two purposes for the ceremony. And the, the first purpose is to discover guilt. And the ser- second pur- purpose is to clear the innocent. In other words, what's happening here is that there is at least some protection for the woman from the mob who might act based on mere suspicion. In other words, suspicion does not give you right to pass judgment. And so the mob has no business coming against her. So there is some protection there. This ceremony actually was an agreement by the man, the woman, and the priest to leave the decision up to God. We don't know. We have no idea what happened here. So we will leave the decision and we will place the decision in the hands of God and let God make his will known. So the first one, is this an attack on on women? It certainly probably does not fit 21st century um, sensitivities, but there are many things here that I would say is actually a, a protection for women who uh, might otherwise be swept up in mob violence. The next really challenging issue is, is this a trial by ordeal? What I mean by that, trials by ordeal were very common in pagan cultures. And maybe even, um, well, maybe even we've seen them somewhat recently. Um, But they were common in pagan cultures. And what they were, what a trial by ordeal was, was that it was, you had to do something to prove your innocence. All right. So first of all, it was a, you're guilty um, before being proven innocent. But it was some 
really horrific test to prove your innocence. In other words, stick your hand in this pot of boiling oil and if you don't get burned, you're innocent. That's a trial by ordeal. Jump off the cliff and if you land softly, you're innocent. If you come crashing to the earth, well, you were guilty. So that's what I mean by a trial by ordeal and this is not that. This is something completely different. See, Leviticus 5 is, is, is neutral. And it is controlled under the supervision of a priest that is not given by the mob. In other words, if you are suspicious, you do not address it through whispers or secretly or gathering friendly and allies. It goes before the re- religious leaders. It's exposed and we let God ha- be God. So, in other words, the, the woman was to drink this Dirty water, basically. There's a cup of water and uh, the priest would write curses um, on some sort of tablet, wash those curses into the water and put some dirt from the tabernacle into the water and she was to drink it. This is pretty much harmless. I know we live in a very sterile society, but they drank dirty water all the time. The water probably came out of the bronze laver, which was outside. So it was probably pretty clean water. Um, threw a little dirt in there. I don't know. I've done enough backpacking. I've drinking enough dirt in my water. That So in other words, this is a relatively neutral act. It is not going to kill a person or damage a person just by doing it. But rather, the idea was that God would work in this. Sometimes people think, well, that sounds pretty superstitious. But we, we have something very similar, don't we? I mean, when we take the Lord's Supper, we even say, if you take of this unworthily, Paul said people died because they drank the cup unworthily. And so we have our, our rituals as well. And so if you are suspicious, you do not get to determine on your own You are to leave it, and there is no proof. You are to leave it in the hands of God. God will decide. And so there was an act of faith. We look for the ultimate remedy. We see, I want to point you to the fact that the coming of Christ was a double-edged sword. The coming of Christ was a two-edged sword. Because the coming of Christ was a threat of judgment on the guilty, against Satan and those who would follow his ways. The coming of Christ was a threat of judgment on the guilty. It was also an assurance of salvation and vindication to the repentant. In other words, the coming of Christ forced us into two two very polar opposite views. You either remain in your sin or you run to Christ. Those are our only two options. But let me give you the reality of this. The reality is every single one of us in here, every single one of us in here are spiritual adulterers. There's none of us who are innocent. The Bible often talks about um, idolatry as being, relates it um, to adultery, faithlessness the going after of other gods. 
And any time we seek that which is not God or prioritize that which is not God, we once again demonstrate our faithlessness. And by the way, for us, there is no mere suspicion. We've been caught in the act and we will bear the penalty. We don't need, God doesn't need to do a ceremony to determine whether we're guilty or not. We know our sin. And so just as the woman drank from the cup of the curse, so Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath for us. And he drank it to the dregs. She drank the cup of the curse. Christ drank the cup of, of God's wrath. If, this, if there be any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? I'm going to bear the wrath of God for your sins and I'm willing to do it. It is the curse and I will drink every ounce of it. And then we see over in Ephesians 5 in dealing with the treatment of a husband to a wife compares it to Christ who washes us clean. It is a different kind of water. It is not mixed with dirt nor is it mixed with the words of the curse but rather it is combined with the word of his salvation. It is not as a suspicious husband, but as one who desires that is that we might be presented to him as a radiant bride, not as a object of suspicion. Folks, we have a Lord who is our husband. The church is his bride and we have been faithless, not by mere suspicion, but by overt act. And the one to whom we are betrothed drank the cup of the curse instead of making us drink it. And he washes us clean with the water of his word. And he makes us radiant and bids us welcome into his presence. And he long awaits the day when the betrothed, when we who are betrothed will become united with him in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. I'll conclude with this. The unclean were put outside the camp. I love how the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 says that let us go outside the camp to where Christ is. You've got to remember outside the camp is where all the defilement was. Jesus was defiled on our behalf. And then as almost as the author of Hebrews celebrates going where Jesus is and he took our defilement. Let's go there. Because where Jesus is, the curse will be reversed. Our leprosy and death and discharge, everything that speaks of death will be taken care of. For only in Him will the curse of death will be healed. In other words, Jesus is the one who alters our nature. Jesus makes atonement and restitution. Colossians chapter 2 informs us that He has canceled the certificate of debt that has been recorded against us. And finally, Jesus has drunken the cup of God's wrath. He has bared our curse. And let me just point, I don't have time to deal with this greatly, but just hopefully for your edification, the grain in the, in, in the ceremony of Leviticus 5, 11 through 31. The grain and the cup were the instruments of the ceremony. And so today, the bread and the cup 
reminds us that we are declared innocent. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper every second Sunday, we are reminded that the, the grain, the bread, and the cup have been given to us not as a curse, but as a reminder that we have been declared not guilty by faith alone, by grace alone, by the merits of Christ alone. We partake of it, and here's the thing, we do not die, but rather we live because of what Christ has done. Father, we are here this day, and we are grateful for your wonder, your wondrous works on our behalf. We, Father God, have been guilty, and yet you bore the wrath on our behalf. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, Lord God. I know this is a difficult passage of text. I pray that your name is honored and that it has not been distorted in any way, Lord God. Let your name be glorified and let us rejoice in the work of Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand and let's uh, sing.